Father, thanks for the opportunity just to be still, even for a moment. Pray that you would help us practice that throughout our weeks. As we're often rushing uh, to and fro, would you help us slow down and recognize your presence? We pray that you would meet us this morning, God, through your word in Isaiah. You would speak to our hearts. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be transformed into the image and likeness of your Son. Would you do it this morning in and through us? We ask it in your name. Amen. <clears throat> well, there was a, a popular band, still a popular band, called U2. And in the 80s and 90s, they were a big deal. And their front man, his name is Bono, uh, if you're familiar with him. And Bono is, claims to be a follower of Jesus from everything I've read and heard. And in the 2000s, he got a hold of some of Eugene Peterson's work. So if you're not familiar with Eugene Peterson, he was a pastor back east for years. He's now passed away. Uh, but he's probably most well known for uh, his paraphrased version of the Bible called The Message. And as the story goes, Bono reaches out to Eugene Peterson to try and connect with him. And there's this whole um, great video of them getting in, Bono interviewing Eugene Peterson on the book of Psalms as, as poetry and what it means to be an artist. It's really cool if you want to look it up later. Uh, but he initially reaches out to Eugene Peterson, and Eugene Peterson doesn't really know who Bono is, apparently. Like, he lives in a, a cave or something. And uh, as the story goes, Eugene Peterson is uh, in his devotions for the day, and he's reading and studying the book of Isaiah, the book that we're in currently. And his daughter picks up the phone, and Bono is on the phone. And she's like, this is, th th Bono is on the phone. Can I talk to your dad? And so she goes to, knocks on her, her dad's study and says, dad, there's a phone call for you. And he goes, I'm, I, I need to call him back because I'm studying Isaiah. And she goes, no, 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 dad, it's Bono. And he goes, she goes, honey, it's Isaiah. Uh, which I just think is a beautiful answer. And the more um, I personally study the book of Isaiah, um, because it's, it's Old Testament, it's prophecy, it's poetry, it can be sometimes confusing at first glance when you first read it. But just like any poetry or Shakespeare, when you really sit in it and you study in it and you soak in it, you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is so amazing. And so hopefully that's going to be the case as we've been walking through um, in this series. It's nine weeks called The Servant King, and we're looking specifically at chapters 40 through 55, which is kind of all one strong poetry thought of prophecy uh, together in the book of Isaiah. It, it can get subdivided into two parts, which we'll talk about next week. Um, but the whole purpose, the whole purpose of this section of Scripture in the Old Testament is that God is the one true God that comforts and restores his people. You see, God's people had been rescued by him. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story in the book of Exodus, they're rescued out of slavery miraculously, and God provides for his people, and he protects his people, and he cares for his people, but his people don't follow him in the midst of that, right? Just like us, we continue to chase after things that are not God, um, and God, in the midst of this, says, okay, uh, because I love you, I'm actually gonna bring some discipline to help you get back to following me. And so in the midst of that, God sends the Assyrians and then ultimately the Babylonians to conquer Israel. And if you know the story, again, uh, the Babylonians come in and they destroy the temple and they exile God's people, the nation of Israel, to Babylon as a discipline. And in the midst of where we're picking up in Isaiah 40, God is saying, okay, 
the discipline is now over and I'm going to restore my relationship with you and I'm going to comfort you and I'm going to care for you. I actually never left, but you're looking at your circumstances and you're confused and you don't understand where have I gone? I've been here the whole time and oh, by the way, I am going to rescue you once again and restore relationship with us together. So that's where we're jumping in into the text. If you've missed the the beginning of this series, we've already walked through chapter 40, 41, 42, and 43. And in that, we see God, and he continues to do this all the way through chapter 55, is what he does is he holds up his resume of who he is, and then he holds up these idols that we keep chasing after. He goes, there's not life here, there's life here in relationship with me. And then he continues to give notice to what uh, he is going to say, man, there's a servant king, there's a servant that's coming. We saw it in in chapter 42, it was just a a quick peek at this servant that's ultimately gonna come. He's gonna be a light to the nations and he is going to uh, execute justice for all humanity. And eventually we find out that it's Jesus. We're gonna get in way more of that language on the back half of our series. But because God is a good God that loves us and that if you put his resume up against the resume of the idols, he always wins, that ought to give us comfort. Even in the midst of our circumstances, which don't seem to make sense for God's people going like, I don't understand why this is happening. He's going, no, 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 I'm going to give you comfort. I'm going to continue to come after you. And we saw that in a text last week in, in chapter 43, if you were with us, just this idea of fear not Like, I'm doing the same thing. I'm rescuing you, I'm restoring you, but I'm actually doing it in a new way. Don't look to the old way when I rescued you through the Red Sea with power and this unbelievable display on the outside. I'm actually gonna send one that's lowly and I'm gonna rescue you in a different way. Because God's people, even before Jesus steps onto the scene, they're expecting the Messiah to come in political power. They're expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow the government and that's not how Jesus comes. And we see as Isaiah says that in chapter 43. So we're going to pick up in chapter 45 this morning. We're going to walk through uh, chapter 45, 46, and 47. Let me just kind of set the table because it's a lot of text. Um, Chapter 45, in the midst of not fearing and knowing that God is going to rescue and restore his people, what he does in chapter 45 is he talks about how he's going to physically rescue these people. He's going to use King Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, to come in and take over the nation of Babylon. So again, chapter 45, um, God is going to display who he's going to use as a rescue for his people. And then chapters 46 and 47 are going to be how he chooses to rescue his people. So that gives you some framework. Let's jump in. If you have a Bible, open it up if it's not already there to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45, and again, just to give you some context, if you don't know who Cyrus is, because 45 is all about King Cyrus, and as God is saying, I am going to strategically use this king to rescue you from the nation of Babylon. Uh, King Cyrus is the king of Persia. He comes in, he overthrows the nation of Babylon, and then he sends God's people back to the capital of Jerusalem. But not only does he do that, he actually empowers them and gives them money to rebuild the temple. We see that in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah, if you were with us a couple years ago when we walked through that. So uh, Isaiah chapter 45, let's read first verses 1 through 7. This is what it says. It says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, 
to subdue nations before him and to loosen the belts of kings, to open the doors before him, that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and I will cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. So what we see in verses one through seven as this chapter kicks off is going like, okay, Cyrus, here's what's gonna happen. Even though you don't know me, I know you, and I'm gonna empower you to come in and rescue my people out of Babylon. And we could read that, and God's people, I imagine, would read that and go, wait a second. <laughs> like, like this God, Cyrus doesn't even know you. He worships idols. He doesn't worship the one true God. How are you going to use somebody that doesn't know you to rescue us? This doesn't seem to make sense to us. Let's continue in to jump down to verse 9. This is kind of God's response to maybe that heart attitude of going, wait a second, God, how could you use Cyrus? Verse 9, he says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthland pots. Does the clay to say to him who forms it, what are you making? For your work has no handles. This is, uh, Paul picks up this, this language in Romans 9, even the same illustration, like the, the, the clay doesn't say to the potter, like, oh, you should make me this way. Then verse 10, he gives another woe. He says, woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. You will command me concerning my children and the work of my hands. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. For not a prince or, or for not a price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So God again responds to his people here, going like, they're going like, I'm gonna use Cyrus, this guy that does not know me, that does not worship me, I'm gonna use him for my purposes. And the people are probably like, this doesn't make sense. And he goes, oh, hold on a second. Let me help you understand that you don't get to decide what I do. Have you ever been in a situation? Uh, whether it's in a leadership situation or you're just observing somebody else's actions and you look at their actions and you go, why are they doing it that way? I, if I was in charge of that situation, there's no way I would do it that way. Clearly, they're confused, they're mistaken. You kind of get judgmental. As, am I the only one that's like that? Like, <laughs> No, thank you, John. I appreciate that. Um, my wife, uh, early on when we were married, before we had kids, and she tells the story all the time, and, and she said it was okay to, to share this morning, but uh, when she would get into a car with her older friends that had kids, and specifically toddlers, 
she'd look around. If you've ever been in the back of a minivan of toddlers, it's like you need a hazmat suit because you're like, I don't know what I'm going to get into or step into or like, and, and she remembers as she tells it, like anytime I got into a car with kids that had food in the van, I was like, when I'm a mom, there's no way I'm letting food in my car because this is disgusting. This is gross. This is fast forward to us having kids. We had three kids all a year and a half apart from each other, three-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old, and a newborn. And they continued to grow at that pace. <laughs> when my wife, when we got a van, and she's just like, I don't know what I was thinking before. Because at this point, I don't care. She's just taking french fries and throwing them <laughs> back. Like, I don't care. Like, get them to stop crying. Get them to stop fighting with each other. Like, if food does that, that's great. Right? So sometimes we have this attitude and we go like, oh, if I was in charge, if I was doing it, then I would do it this way. And then you get into the situation and you're like, oh, I was way off. <laughs> and sometimes we do that in our relationship with God. We get confused of God's methods. We get confused of why would God use that person? That person doesn't even worship God. He's not going to use that. And we kind of begin to explain it away and kind of make sense and go like, God, why would you do that? And then we realize like, oh, wait a second, we're not God. And we actually don't know what he's doing in the moment. Instead of continuing to question his methods and explain away, going like, well, that can't be God. He couldn't use or he wouldn't use, right? Why does God use Cyrus? Why does God use Nebuchadnezzar? Why does God use Pharaoh? Why do God use these people that don't worship him for his purposes? It does not make sense to us often. And we can explain it away instead of going, you know what, I don't know. I need to trust God in this scenario, in this circumstance that does not make sense to me. God continues to go on in chapter 45 and verses 14 through 25 are, again, just him going like, let me remind you of my resume. In case you're questioning my methods, let me help you understand who I am. We're not going to read it in its entirety just based on time, but let's look at verses 20 through 23 just to get a little taste of what God is doing here in the midst of this. He says this in verse 20 of chapter 45. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nation. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved from all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Again, Paul picks up this language in Philippians 2. If you're familiar with the New Testament, it's almost the exact same phrase that he's grabbing from Isaiah in this passage. And again, for us, sometimes we look at our circumstances and we just scratch our head and we go, God, I don't, like, why, why? this doesn't make any sense. And sometimes God's sovereignty that he's in control, sometimes God's sovereignty is, we think it's a problem to kind of be managed, to make sense in our head, but it, it really needs to be a reality for us to embrace. Because God is a good God, even though it doesn't make sense of why he would choose to use this, he does, and he's good. 
and he's right. So even in these, this last part of, of chapter 45, as he's talking about how he's going to use Cyrus to rescue his people out of physical captivity from Babylon, he wants to make sure that we realize, that his people realize, listen, um, even though I'm choosing to use Cyrus, don't get it twisted. Like, I, I, Cyrus is not the one that's going to rescue you. Your idols are not the one that's going to rescue you. I'm the only one that rescues you. Be reminded of that in my character. So God, again, in his sovereignty, sometimes uses methods we don't understand or don't expect to restore us. Then in chapter 45, uh, again, if, if that whole chapter was about who he's going to use to rescue his people, chapters 46 and 47 are how he's going to rescue his people. And there's three things we're going to see in these two chapters together of how he's going to do it. The first thing is he's going to confront the idols of the culture. He continues to do this time and time again from chapter 40 through 55. He confronts the idols of the culture that we run to for comfort. And then he's going to comfort his people by carrying them, reminding them like, listen, this idol can't carry you, but I've been carrying you all along and I will continue to carry you, and you should find comfort in that. And then the last thing we're going to see in chapter 47 is that he is going to crush the enemy. He is going to crush Babylon in the midst of his rescue and his restoration of his people. So let's look at those three things as we jump into chapter 46, verse 1. It says this, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Those are Babylonian idols. Those are Babylonian gods. It says their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry and are born as burdens on weary beasts. So he's saying, listen, you create this statue, this idol, these Babylonian gods, and then you put them on these oxen, you put them on these horses, and they carry you, but they're burdensome. Verse 2, they stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O Israel, or O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of house of Israel, who have been born by me before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and will bear, and I will carry and save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and who weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes into a god, and then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, and they carry it. They set it in its place. It stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. So again, in the midst of these seven verses, God is again putting the idols against himself. And he's using this metaphor as he confronts the idols of the culture and he comforts his people by saying, listen, um, these idols cannot carry you. I have and I will continue to carry you. And the question for us this morning is, man, do you need to be carried? With the circumstances of your life and what's happening right now, do you need someone to carry you? Because we're created as humans to be reliant on God, not reliant on ourselves. But again, we, because of sin, we go after these idols and we expect them to carry us, to give us this comfort. And they ultimately won't. We were having this conversation 
at our staff meeting last week, we're, uh, some of us are reading through a book by a gal named Jennifer Tucker called Breath is Prayer. And it's this devotional book, and the premise of the book is she talks about how, just like science says, um, the bridge between your brain and your body is breathing, right? If you stop breathing, that doesn't work. Your body doesn't work, your brain doesn't work. So the bridge between your brain and your body is breathing, and the bridge between us and God is prayer. And so using uh, breathing techniques along with scripture memorization as a discipline to rewire your thinking of what is true of God's word. And so at staff meeting, we were going off 1 Peter 5, 7, which is a prompt she has in one of her devotions. And if you're not familiar with 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, cast your anxiety on him for he cares for you. And in the book, she says, get a three-by-five card. And we did this at our staff meeting. Get a three-by-five card. And I just want you to write all the things you're burdened about. And everything you're anxious about. Things that are keeping you up at night. Relationship conflict and, and things that you're bothered by. It could be financial. What are things that weigh heavy on you? Write them all down on this index card. And then set them, literally set them at your feet. In a posture of going like, God calls us to put our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And so we did this, and then we took five minutes as we wrote them all out just between us and the Lord. We put it down on, by our feet, and then we took five minutes to pray. And in the midst of this prayer, in the midst of this breathing, it was to inhale this verse as, as we took breath into our body in a quiet space and said, man, I want to put all my burdens on you. And as we exhale, because you care for me. And we did that for five minutes. And man, it changes your mentality. All those things that are so heavy that we walk around with. And again, we think we have to solve on our own. We think we need to be the ones that figure it out. And God's going, no, give it to me. Like, give it to me. I want to take it for you because I care for you. And I'm the one that can fix it. But again, often we don't do that because of our pride or confusion. We just kind of carry it on our own. In the midst of this caring language that shows up so many times, again, if you just look at verses 1 through 7, um, you'll see uh, in verse 1, he says, carry. Uh, in verse 3, he says, carry. And in verse 4, he says, carry. Twice. Uh, in verse 7, he says, carry. And again, he's relating it to the idols that we have and him. So I, I went into this rabbit hole on YouTube, right, which is what most pastors do when they're looking for illustrations. And I, I, I came across um, trust, fall, fails. So. Don't look it up now, but look it up later, please. Uh, don't get distracted now. But um, So the first video I came across is just trust fall. You guys know what a trust fall is, right? You, you stand up and you do this and you fall backwards and people catch you. And it, it's, it's kind of unnerving because you, you fall and you think, well, I could fall. Um, and so this first one, it's probably about 10 people. I don't know if you've seen this video. It looks like it's in a church office or something like that. Since older guys going, okay, we're going to do a trust, a trust fall. And Mikey, stand up here. And he has this guy stand up on this chair. And then he goes, I want you to, I want you to close your eyes and just put your hands like this. And so this is, this is what this guy does. He closes his eyes. And then he goes, okay, everybody else gather around. And they all gather behind him. And, and he goes, here's what we're going to do. This is a trust fall. You have to trust us. And so on, on the count of three, I want you to fall. That's all he says. He doesn't say fall back. He says, I want you to fall. Uh, and then everybody's going, and you got to trust us that we're going to catch you. That's what this is. And so he goes, one, two, three, and the dude falls forward. <laughs> right? And, <laughs> and it's really funny. And, um, and sometimes that's, I think, what we do with our idols. We get in these situations, and we feel burdened, 
And we go, okay, I'm gonna, and we go, I'm gonna trust God. God, I'm gonna trust you with this. And then instead of falling backwards to the Lord, we, we fall forward to our idols. And when we do that, the idols cannot catch us. They cannot carry us, as Isaiah is saying. It will not work. But we still, we stand up there and we go, okay, well, this looks comfortable. And we just start falling forward instead of falling backwards into the Lord. And when we fall forward in our idols, I mean, again, they're, they're appealing because they will scratch that itch momentarily, won't they? Like, we do that. Like, where do you go when you need comfort? Where do you go when you feel like you need something to carry your burdens? Man, do you go to your phone and you just start scrolling? Right? Do you go to pornography because it makes you feel better at some level? Do you go to spending? Do you, do you, and you don't even really consciously realize you're doing it all the time. You just have like retail therapy and you're like, well, if I, if I buy this thing for a house, I'll feel better about myself. We do it in all these different ways. And what I'm suggesting to you is when we do that, we're falling forward on a trust fall. And God is saying in here, I say, like, your idols can't hold you. They can't carry you. Like, I'm the only one that can hold you. I'm the only one that can carry you. And by the way, I've been doing it since you were born, and I will be doing it until you go away. Sometimes we just feel like, I don't feel like he's carrying me anymore. But I think that's because we're falling in the wrong direction. The other video I came across, this one was really funny. Uh, it's like, it's, it's about a year old, and uh, it's these college kids, uh, and they're, they're walking around campus, and one of them, if you've seen this video, he's like an offensive lineman football player. He's huge. He's really big, and his buddy's video, and he just walks up to random people, and he just goes, trust fall, and he falls back, <laughs> and he's massive, so like these people are like going down like, you know, bowling pins. This one he does, like this guy's getting his mail, and he just, trust fall, and he just crushes him. It's really <laughs> funny. But I watched that one, and I said, um, not only can idols not hold you, but that feels like the reverse picture of if we continue to run the idols, the idols will crush us. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, they go, oh, okay, you want to worship me? Keep falling. Oh, okay, I'm going to fall back into you. And we get crushed by our idols because we can't carry them. Like it's burdensome, which is what the text's saying. It's like this doesn't work. And it's surprising for us sometimes, isn't it? Because we've run to this idol before, and somehow it gives us momentary relief, and we think, oh, well, that seems to work because I, I don't feel like I'm getting any relief from the Lord. And what Isaiah is telling us this morning is going, like, listen, don't fall forward into these idols. Fall back into me. What does that falling back look like? If you're a Christian in the room, again, it's praying. It's doing exercises like that to say, let me write all my stuff down. It's doing it in community, confessing to one another and going like, I messed up and I need help. And we usually don't do that because we're proud or because it feels like if we do that, we're going to get looked at in a certain way. But that actually is where we're going to get relief in our confession, bringing things into light that feel scary and we don't want to share it. And what are you going to think of me? But that's falling backwards into the hands of God. And we need to continue to do that. So in the midst of even that second video of um, this guy kind of crushing people and us thinking about our idols will eventually crush us, the beauty is not only as we fall back into God will our idols not crush us, but God actually crushes our idols. 
And that's actually what he does all in chapter 47, which we'll get to in a second. But even thinking as we round out chapter 46, what's our role in that? And God's rescue and his restoration in us, what's our role in, in the midst of that? And I would say for the Christian, for the person that has chosen to, to bend their knee to Jesus and surrender their life to him, verses 8 and 9 give us a good practical step in what that looks like. Let's look down at your Bibles again. Chapter 46, verses 8 and 9. It says, remember this and stand firm. Recall to it, to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. For I am God, there is none like me. For the person that's a Christian and it's somehow falling back or falling forward into these idols, maybe not even our purpose, the, 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 the encouragement for us is to go remember and stand firm, recall it to mind what God has done, what he is doing, what he will do in the future. My daughter is a, a sophomore in high school and she's getting ready um, to be the lead in the spring musical at Deer Valley High School, and their shows Thursday, Friday, this is a shameless plug, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday <laughs> at Deer Valley High School, the, the, the musical is Once Upon a Mattress, which is a satire of the Princess and the Peas story, and my daughter plays Princess Winifred, if you know the story, and Princess Winifred is from a swamp. And when I think about this verse, I think of the times when I do fall forward in idolatry, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and then my mind gets really murky. It gets really muddy. It feels like swamp water. Like you don't want to go in there. You don't want to swim in there. But that's kind of how my mind starts to feel in the moment of chasing those things when I'm looking for comfort. My brother lives in Hawaii. Have you ever seen the ocean in Hawaii? It's just clear and beautiful it does not look like a swamp. And what Isaiah is telling us here in verse 8 and 9 is like, remember this, stand firm, recall it to mind. Don't be living in that swamp art anymore. I actually have given you clear water to swim in and to remember it, to stand firm, to recall it to mind. Why do you think we do what we do every single Sunday at the table as we come down and we take a piece of bread which represents his body and we dip it in juice? We're remembering we don't have to live that way in that swamp anymore. We have clear water to live in because of what Jesus has done for us. So to take active steps in remembering that will change the way you think about things. That's what God is calling us to do in the midst of falling forward into our idols. So that's for the, the people that have said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And even in this context, I, I would say verses 12 and 13 should be uh, an encouragement for those that haven't made the decision to follow Jesus yet. Look down at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 46. He says, listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. For some of us that haven't made the decision for Jesus, and you find yourself in this room for some weird reason, you think, like, you can have life and have it to the full. God's righteousness is not far away, but he's brought it near through the person, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And as you give your life to Jesus, you're changed. You're brought near. Stop having a stubborn heart and trust that God is working in and through you to move you to a relationship with Jesus. And even in that text, man, 
This God, this God of the Bible, he's so merciful. And he's so good. He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us mercy. But he's not only a God of mercy. If you know the Bible and if you understand who God is, he's also a God of justice. Holds those things in tension. Right? This God of the Bible, he's not going to let the wicked go unpunished. He wouldn't be true and he wouldn't be right if he did. And the question for us, even this morning, is, man, uh, as we're about to read chapter 47, and we're not going to unpack it, we're just going to kind of let it sit on us a little bit, because the language is fairly intense. And what it is, again, is God going, here's what's going to happen to you, Babylon, because you've been doing these things to my people. Even though he uses Babylon as, as a way of discipline for his people, Babylon kind of, uh, they tack on extra terrible things. And if you look at the image of Babylon, even in Revelation 18, Babylon kind of represents the things of the world, the power of the world, the money of the world, the sex of the world, which are anti-God's kingdom. And he says, this is what's going to happen to you. So as, we read, as I just read uh, um, chapter 47, all 15 verses, just I want you to sit on it, and I want you to ask this question, because some of us, we've had an injustice done to us. I mean, we've been violated in a way we never thought we'd be violated. It doesn't make sense to us. And we're going, God, where were you in that moment? Has that ever happened to you? Have you been betrayed by somebody close to you? Have you been hurt by somebody? Have you been in a situation where justice did not get served? And you're going like, I don't understand this. This is God's response to the evil in Babylon and the evil against his kingdom. Verse 1 of chapter 47, let's read this together. It says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Make the milestone and grind the flower. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, and pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into the darkness, O daughter of Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called the mistress of the kingdoms. I was angry with my people and profaned, uh, profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand, and you showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be a mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and the widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. In spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments, you felt secure in your wickedness. And you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am. There's no one besides me, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you, and suddenly of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorcerers, of which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps they 
may be able to uh, succeed. And perhaps you may inspire terror. He's giving sarcasm at this point in verse 12. Verse 13, you are wearied with your many counselors. Let them stand forth and, and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, and whose noon moons make known what is to come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those whom you have labored, whom have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Those people that have betrayed you, that have hurt you, that have not getting, had, had justice in this life, know that God is a God of justice and he will execute justice. The problem is, the problem with this text is we go, yeah, get them. Like I've been hurt, I've been betrayed, and this is not right, this is not fair. They got away with it. God, in your judgment, would you come and would you smoke them? The problem is we're those people. We've hurt people. We've betrayed people. We're in this category. And unless you've given your life to Jesus in an exchange for your life, this is what is coming to you. That's the beautiful exchange of the gospel. All of these things that Isaiah lays out in chapter 47, these are the things that we ought to deserve. The target should be on us because of our sin, because of our destruction, because of our selfishness, what we've done to other people, to hurt people. And instead, if you give your life to Jesus, the target is now on him. And even look at the language of, of, of where we see Jesus heading to the cross, even in chapter 47. Look at verse 1. Come down from the dust and sit in the dust. Jesus leaves heaven and comes down to the earth, to the dust. He sits on the ground without a throne. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, again, leaves his throne for earth. Look at verse 2. Strip off your robe. As Jesus goes to the cross, he has a robe stripped off of his body. The end of, or the beginning of verse 3. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. Jesus does all of that. He is disgraced. He is naked on the cross for you and for I. And if we give our life to Christ, that is the exchange that we get. That should offer us comfort. It should help us change the way we live and how we love other people. But God is a God of justice and he is a God of mercy. And that's found completely in the person of Jesus. Let's continue to worship him this morning. Let's be reminded not to fall forward into our idols, but to fall back into God and go, even though I don't understand why you're doing this or why you would choose that person to do this thing, I trust you. I trust you because you're good and you're right, and ultimately you will make all things right again. As we step down to take the table this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, may that be a reminder for you. Again, remember Stand firm, remember these things, just as you remember that Jesus is the access point for us not having to take what happens in Isaiah 47, but Jesus takes it upon himself. You remember that truth and what we take the piece of bread, which represents his body, and we dip it in the juice, which represents his blood, and we remember that, not only what he has done, but what he will do, because one day he's going to come back, and he is going to make it all right again, and we will sit at a table with tons of other people, and we will celebrate the goodness of God, and we will have comfort. Let's pray. Father, would you do 
what you say you're going to do. Would you restore us? Would you redeem us? Would you help us when we scratch our head and we don't understand your methods of rescue? Like, Why would you use somebody or a system that doesn't follow you, that doesn't seem to make sense to you? God, would you help us realize that in your goodness, you know what you're doing? Would we embrace that instead of trying to wiggle out of it? God, thanks for the, your son and the gift of understanding that we can fall back into you and that you will catch us. God, you will carry us. You have carried us. You will continue to carry us. Help us lean into that truth even this morning. We ask that you would be with us, and we pray it in your son's name. Amen.